that your children have followed you to the Asherah poles. That your idolatry is engraved like a diamond-pointed pen on your hearts. And then he uses this beautiful picture of the shrub and the tree. If you're willing and able, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Jeremiah 17, 5 down through verse 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in a year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But God's word, friends, stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Where do you go to find rest for your soul? One of the places my family likes to go is camping. (laughs) In this fall break, we decided to go camping together to find rest for our soul Together, we go out to one of our state parks and we pitch our tents. We have everything set up. We're ready to go. And that night, rain, which is no big deal for experienced hardcore campers. We were ready for the rain, except one of our tents leaked like crazy. And two of our children woke up in like a kiddie pool inside their tent. And so we said, you know what? We're going to push through it. We pushed through it. We dried everybody off. We got under our canopy. We fixed scrambled eggs and pancakes. It was wonderful. And then we thought, where is Augie? I have four children. I had three at that moment. And my youngest, Augie, is one of those guys who likes to, he's never lost, but he likes to wander, right? And we look, and we cannot find our youngest child. And we're on a peninsula where there's a lot of water. And so I immediately head to the shore to look for Augie, and I walk the shoreline. I don't see him anywhere. My wife gets in her car. We, we had put the dry stuff in the car. We put the key in the car. We, we were driving. She's driving the car around, and she is driving across the state parking. She looks at me, and she goes, I'm freaking out right now. You know that feeling, moms? We've had that feeling twice in our life, both with our youngest son. We can't find Augie anywhere. He went off this way. We saw him walk off. And then Andrew goes, I'll go back to the camp and wait for him. And Andrew goes back to the camp. And who does he see walking back to the camp from the other direction? Was Augie. Hmm, so safe. And then a few minutes later after that, you know when your adrenaline is so high and just trying to calm down and you're just freaked out and you're just trying to go back to your scrambled eggs and it's hard. And then one of our kids shuts our car door and then all of a sudden the horn hawks, which means the car locks. And the key was inside the car. 
So then we try all the doors to the car. We can't get the car unlocked. First it was rain, then it was we lost our son, and then it was we locked our keys in the car on a camp out. How about that for restful? So we call the locksmith who comes. It gets better, folks. Just wait. You call the locksmith, and he comes, and he, he opens our car for us, thinking that our key is going to be in the car, right? It's one of these, like, push-button start cars where, like, you have to have the fob in the car to start the car, and the key fob is nowhere in that car. So we search the campground high and low, looking for this key fob, asking our sweet little wandering Augie, Augie, did you see this key fob anywhere? We can't find the key fob anywhere, which means we have to leave our doors open the whole day because we can't shut the door. We can't get back in. So then I leave the campsite. I drive down to Tulsa, and I go back to the dealership where we bought the car, and I had them cut us a new key, get us a new key fob, which, by the way, doesn't start your car because it has to be programmed to start the car. Go all the way back to the campsite, get back to the campsite, and by the grace of God, I'm able to program the key fob to work in the car. And the car starts. It's amazing. It's awesome. Rest, finally. And as I'm driving back in with this brand new key fob after almost losing my child, almost, uh, and then waking up to a puddle in our tent, who moves in next door to our campsite but, like, a massive family reunion, like right next to us. And they said, we have two tents, and we filled our campsite. They have 15. And they're playing music like all night long until midnight, 1 o'clock. I'm not kidding, 2 o'clock. I'm like putting sound machines on our phones trying to get us to go to sleep. 3 o'clock, finally the music dies down, and we drift off to sleep. And the next morning I wake up, and God bless my precious wife. She looks at me, and she goes, man, yesterday felt so long, didn't it? But you know what? I feel like I've gotten rest this weekend in a weird way. It's funny how your week can be totally frenetic and crazy and have a day like we had on Friday and Saturday, which was just an amazing memory for us. And yet, you can still have a kind of deep soul rest. How is that possible? In a world that chomps at your heels, you're going to school, you're trying to figure out who you're going to marry, you're raising children, you're starting a career, you're, you're grieving over divorce, you're, you're working through abortion, you are struggling with all these decisions and experiences in your past that now you have to come to grips with. You're carrying your heavy burdens into this room this morning. You're thinking about the death of your moms and your dads. You're Way down by the circumstances that life has dealt you. How do we learn to rest as a congregation? Take out your Roots journal. Turn with me to Roots for Rest. And if we're going to learn how to rest together, we have to first of all see the source of God's blessing, the symptoms of the curse, and our search for rest. The nature of rest is nothing new. Every generation has created safe spaces, places for rest for God's, for, for people, not only God's people, but for people. After World War I, it was the YMCA that created the, um, the United Work, uh, War Work Council for all those vets who came back from the war to process the atrocities of World War I with their families in 1,500 YMCA canteens across America and France. A generation later, it was the corporate world who learned about safe spaces. In the 1950s, corporations set up safe spaces so that employees could talk about their relationship with their employers in a safe space without retribution. In the 1960s, it was the feminist movement who championed the safe space where ideas could be processed together, where women would be able to marshal their resources for equity. 
In the 1980s, it was McGruff Houses and Helping Hands programs. Do you remember this? And the Say No to Drugs program. Where homes and neighborhoods would become safe spaces for children. My parents had a Helping Hands sign in their windows for decades where children who were in danger could come to their house and find a safe space. Today, the safe space is supposed to be the university, isn't it? That's all the rage. And Richard Dawkins blew that idea up a couple of years ago. This week, three years ago, he famously tweeted, the university is not a safe space. If you want a safe space, leave. Go home. Hug your teddy and suck your thumb until you're ready for the university. Where's our safe space? Where do you find rest for your soul? First, you have to see the source of God's blessing of rest for his people. Lower your eyes and look at the text. Jeremiah is writing this beautiful metaphor of the shrub and the tree. And about 20 miles from where Jesus grew up, there is a place called the Garden of Three Springs. He would have known it as the Gan Hashlosha. It was not that far from where Jesus grew up, and it was about 50 miles from where Jeremiah is undoubtedly writing this. It was an amazing place where bay trees and palm trees gave shade to these springs that continually refresh the water. Families all over that area will come and vacation, will, will rest there under those beautiful umbrella-like trees. It is one of the few places in the world where both Palestinians and Jews can come together to play and to picnic together. And Jeremiah probably has gone Hoshlasha in his mind when he's writing this image. Because what makes, we have springs around us, don't we? You can go to Boiling Springs, you can go across the border to Arkansas and go to Eureka Springs. But what makes Gan Hoshlasha so beautiful is that it is smack dab in the middle of the wilderness. And less than a quarter mile apart, you could see beautiful trees growing with leaves that always remained green. And you could see shrubs in the wasteland of the wilderness, just beyond the springs themselves. And so Jeremiah writes of this beautiful contrast. Jeremiah writes that blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, verse 7. And not only who trusts in the Lord, but whose trust is the Lord. And he's writing to a people who were inside the covenant of God's promise. They were part of the Lord's chosen people. Which is ironic, isn't it, that the prophets throughout the Old Testament have to repeatedly call the covenant people of God back to worship the one true God. Jeremiah knew that the one people of God, of Israel, amidst the surrounding nations and tribes, they were the ones who were to be his people, but they had prostituted their life on other gods. Jeremiah says that there are pagan people who prostitute their lives on other gods, and there are covenantal people who prostitute their lives on other gods. It was Manasseh in 2 Kings chapter 21 who set up Canaanite Asherah poles inside the temple. And then later he changed his mind, we read in 2 Chronicles, and he took them out. But sometime after his death, they put them back in because Josiah, the next king, has to take out the pole and he burns it. And after Josiah's death, Israel, the covenant people of God, 
take the Canaanite fertility god of Asherah and they stick her all over the mountains so that the prophets say the Asherah were over the high hills like trees. Somewhere along Israel's history, the Asherah pole became not just a symbol of Canaanite fertility, but it also became a symbol of jealousy. And so they would often stick them beside trees, an Asherah pole and a tree as a symbol of the Asherah pole's jealousy of the living tree next to it. And the people of Israel prostituted their lives on other gods. The point is that Jeremiah is writing not to a pagan people who did not know the promises of God. He's writing this to people who did. So the question for us as we begin to think about our own source of rest is are you in the covenant people of God? Yes, that is one question to ask. But even if you're in it, are you converted? What does it mean for us to rest and worship as a people? Throughout the history of God's people, God had said to them, I will be the one who gives you rest. He promised them that through Moses in Exodus 33. And then in Joshua, he says in Joshua chapter 1, I will give you rest, but it will take the form of rest within geographical bounds of a piece of land. You will go there. And then in 2 Kings chapter 5, God says to them, now I want you to take this land, and on that land, I'm going to set up for you a king. His name shall be the king of peace, King Solomon. And not only that, but King Solomon is going to build a temple, a place of worship where people shall come and rest in my presence, where I will dwell no longer as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, but in a temple permanent. And so the people come to the temple. But even that, the Lord says, wasn't enough. One day I'm going to send the root of the David, the root of Jesse, the seed of David, who's going to come and he's going to be for you what the temple, the land, the promise, everything cannot be. Jesus is going to be it. And so Jesus comes on the scene, doesn't he? And he says, come, as Charlie read for us earlier today, all who are heavy laden, take my yoke upon, take my yoke upon yourself because my burden is easy and it's light, and you will find rest for your soul. And in Mark chapter 2, like we heard last week, Jesus himself says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You want Sabbath rest? It isn't just the presence of God in an abstract. It's not just a piece of land. It is not just a temple. I am the Sabbath. And I'm leaving you my spirit to give you rest so that the land now is not only geographically bound, but it is land that goes to the world. As much as the waters cover the sea, so my glory, the Lord says, shall cover the face of the earth through you. So the whole theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a theme of God giving his people rest. And Jeremiah says that it is the Lord who is our rest. Blessed is the man whose trust is in the Lord. But not only that, not just do you believe in him, but whose trust is the Lord. It is the Lord's work for us where we find our ultimate rest. And if I could be so daring as to give you a definition of what rest is, I would define it this way. Rest is not inactivity. Rest is not sleeping in worship. Rest is not taking naps on Sunday afternoon. 
I mean something more than physical rest, although at times it can include it. I mean that you learn to rely not on yourself, but you learn to rely exclusively on your Savior's triumph. You rely exclusively on your Savior's triumph. Yes, I know that's an acronym, R-E-S-T. Thank you very much. But yes, you rely exclusively on your Savior's triumph. That is what the definition of rest is. When people come to Trinity, one of the things that they say they really appreciate is that the session of the church, the leadership of the church said that they could just stop doing stuff for a while and heal. And somewhere along the way, as you begin to heal, your inactivity, which is good for you, your rest, at some point will tip into consumerism. And it's at that point where your inactivity and your rest ceases to be healthy and you need to therefore lean into your gifts and serve. And so for some of you who are out here, the way that you might rest is actually serving again in some way that helps Christ's church flourish. And for some of you, it might be taking a sabbatical for serving in order for you to be able to get refreshed again. But you learn to rely exclusively on the Savior's triumph. Why? Because money, listen, money will satisfy you. It will give you a sense of confidence temporarily. But it will also bring with it tremendous anxieties. Satisfy one part of your life and make you amazingly dissatisfied in others. Sex. It'll satisfy the hormone part of your life, but what? It won't fill your heart. Oftentimes, especially outside of the context of marriage, sex will break your heart. And even within marriage, sex is a tool to be a picture of Christ and His church. And if you abuse it, even within marriage, it breaks your heart. It can never fulfill the longing of your soul. But Christ does. He is the one who knows exactly what you're going through. He's truly God, and He knows exactly how much needs to be paid for your sin. He's, he's truly man, excuse me, on one hand, and He's truly God on the other. It is Christ who satisfies you. So the source of God's blessing is given to us in this beautiful metaphor of the water that sustains the roots. His word and spirit are those waters that nourish and strengthen us to make us grow like trees, not like shrubs in the desert. Not only do we see the blessing of God's rest, but we also see the symptoms of the curse. How do we know if we're really resting in him? Well, notice with me in verse 6, symptom number 1 is exhaustion. It says that he is like a shrub in the desert. Jeremiah imagines a shallow-rooted tree like a dwarf juniper trying to grasp at the nutrients beneath the soil, but whose root system wasn't large enough to reach it. A juniper becomes a tumbleweed after a while. You can see, you can feel the exhaustion, always starting over again and again and again and again, trying to find meaning, but his roots are not deep enough. Second, not only exhaustion, but look, he's distracted. Notice it says that he is like a shrub in the desert. The next line in 6b says, and he shall not see any good come. It's not that there's not any good to see, 
It's that the man who's trusting in man is so consumed with his own anxieties and his own performance metrics, his own world, that he misses the grace of God when it comes and lands at his feet. Are you distracted? Like, even as we start this capital campaign, are you distracted? Oh, that the Lord Jesus would draw us back in and remove the distractions from our life to prioritize what he intends to do in and through us. The third sign of our um, curse is found a little later when he says that he shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Not only are you exhausted, not only are you distracted, but lonely. Notice here that Jeremiah is calling out the people of God saying that you think that you're satisfied inside of my covenant community, but you're exhausted, you're distracted, and you're lonely. There's a reason why Shrillix and Diplo's song, Where Are You Now That I Need You, that Justin Bieber sings, has over one billion hits on YouTube. Because Bieber sings that haunting refrain, Where Are You? Where are you now that I need you? And at Trinity, we're trying to create an environment where relationships aren't manufactured. They take time. But over time, we pray that the community groups that we form together will be a place where you're able to say to your brother and sister, I need you. Because, friends, you cannot, you cannot do life alone. I know that you're smart. All of us in this room are bright. I know that you have resources. So do all of us in this room. But the reason why we tend to react towards self-reliance is because Ralph, God bless him, Ralph Waldo Emerson in the 19th century wrote an essay called Self-Reliance in 1841, and it has stuck in the American psyche ever since. It gave articulation to what we believed, but it has been catechized in a thousand ways. And in his essay, he basically says, self-reliance is the key to the world. Trust not in others. Trust in yourself. Don't help the poor. Trust in yourself. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Do the work. Trust in yourself. Get it done. Ralph Waldo Emerson, 1841. So the Harvard Divinity School took down the Psalms in their chapel and they put up a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote in their chapel at Harvard Divinity School. And Ralph Waldo Emerson is all over the place. His sayings are used and his philosophy is used to sell everything from leadership principles to high school students at student council conventions across the state of Oklahoma to shoes at Woodland Hills Mall. It is shot through everywhere you go. Your coin in your pocket says, in God we trust. But what you really believe when you see that coin is in self I rely and Jeremiah says to the covenant people of God, you've got to turn those around and you've got to rely on the Lord for everything you own and everything that you are. It, you can be in the covenant community of a people. Bill Cosby was. Cliff Huxtable, Dr. Cliff Huxtable, he was America's dad. He was in the covenant community of America. And somewhere along the, the way, he began to believe his own press clippings, that he was untouchable. He was the Bill Cosby, the Dr. Cliff Huxtable, the dad that we all long to have. But then he began to abuse people. And even though he was in the loving arms of the American covenant, 
the judge handed him a life sentence in prison. And if that's true of a man who can be in the covenant of America, how much more true is it for the people of God who are in the covenant community of the infinitely holy and beautiful God who then we shrug off and say, well, we'll take all the benefits of church membership, but we won't worship you. How much worse will it be for us than it was for Bill Cosby? Not only do we see the symptoms of the curse, but ultimately we have to search for rest. God came to Adam after Adam in the garden decided to rest in the voice of another. And God said to him, Adam, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to kick you out of this garden, which makes you feel as though I'm not providing for you, but I'm going to cover you with animal skins. I'm going to promise you that one will come who will crush the head of the serpent. Will you find rest in me? Adam's sons and daughters, listen to me. We still struggle with the very same question that was asked of our first father, Adam. Will you find rest in him? Because notice what the text says. It says, cursed is the man who trusts. It's not just he will fall on bad times. He's accursed. He will not see any good come. He will dwell in the parched places of the wilderness. But the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, he's like a tree planted by the water that sends its roots out to the stream. And he does not fear when he comes. Its leaves will always remain green. And he is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And in our search from rest, we have to remember and trust that the Lord's presence is our place of rest. And what that means for us, practically speaking, is that for 99.999% of us in this room, it means we need to learn how to stop. How do you learn to rest? First of all, you stop. You stop running. You learn how to be still and know that He is God. Isaiah 30, 15 says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning or in repentance and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. The first thing you do uh, when you get lost, they teach you in Boy Scouts, is to stop. The Lord instituted the Sabbath for us, which literally means to cease or to come to an end. He created the Sabbath for us to be a mechanism by which we would train our hearts and our minds to stop. How many of you have a car here that you drive that has two pedals? Anybody have a car with two pedals? You have a gas, accelerator, and you have a brake, correct? You have to learn to use both of them, don't you? And if you do not learn how to use the brake, Our government will set up yield signs to tell you when to use them. And if that doesn't get your attention, then what happens? They put up octagonal stop signs to teach you when to hit the brakes. But if that doesn't happen, they put up red lights for you to see and to tap on the brakes to slow down. And if that doesn't happen, they put up railroad tracks with massive freight trains so that you will finally learn how to stop your car. Some of you need to learn how to use your brakes. 
and tap them every Sunday when you come to worship. Because if you don't, the Lord is going to stick a triangular yield sign in your life. And if you ignore that, he's going to put an octagonal stop sign in your life. And if you ignore that, for some of you who have stuck a freight train in your way and you have smashed right into it. A friend of mine leads a very uh, large church, a couple thousand people. And he was telling me recently on the phone that nobody in his church comes to faith anymore. They're too affluent. They have everything that they need. He said, except those who have cancer, they come to Christ. And those who are going through divorce, they come to Christ. And those who have lost their home, they come to Christ. Why does it take a freight train, people of God, for us to stop? The Lord Jesus gives you worship. He gives you his people to remind you of that. So you have to learn how to stop. And secondly, you have to learn how to listen. You have to learn how to listen because God is saying that where my presence is there, your rest will ultimately be. Do you hear him? And not only do you have to listen to him, but you have to learn how to respond and response for us is going to be different. For some of us, it means we respond by running to this table in a moment to dwell with the Lord in His presence and to sup with Him. For some of us, it means you keep coming to church. It took a lot of energy for you to come this morning. Keep coming. Please keep coming. For others of you, it means you need to follow your calling and conviction. Bill Wilson was destroyed by alcohol. He had nowhere else to go. He couldn't rest. He was addicted. And so he bumped in in Akron, Ohio to a priest whose name was, uh, 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 I was going to say Shoeless Joe Jackson, but that's definitely not his name. He woke, he, I can't remember the Episcopal priest's name, but he bumped into an Episcopal priest who invited him to come to a group of men that were meeting about addictions of all sorts. And at that meeting, he met a, name, a guy who was a surgeon in Akron named Dr. Bob Smith. And by the grace of God, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith struggled together over their respective addictions, and they got sober and free. And they together decided to start another group that focused exclusively on alcoholism. And they decided to name this group what? Alcoholics Anonymous. He couldn't find rest anywhere else. But once he did, once God opened his heart, he found rest by starting an organization to help other people. Some of you, it means coming to church each week to find rest. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. Some of you, it means you follow through on your, your convictions. I have a friend whose name is Eric Stites, who's starting a church in Orlando, in the, in the roughest part of Orlando. And at this place, it, the church plan is called New City Paramore Avenue. And Eric is out one day, he's passing out t-shirts, inviting people, knocking on doors, and a one-legged bicyclist comes by. And he says, yo, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm inviting people to this new church. And he says, well, well can I have a t-shirt? And he says, sure, if you come to church. So he invites this guy to church, and this guy shows up at church with this Paramore Avenue uh, New City Paramore Avenue t-shirt on. And he comes every day that week and he reads the Bible. And the reason that guy was one-legged is because he was the chief drug dealer in Paramore Avenue. 
And several years ago, he was in a car and they got pulled over and they had drugs in the car and the driver got spooked and sped off. And as they're being chased, he hits a telephone pole. The driver's killed and he loses a leg. And a week later, after meeting with this group at New City Paramore Avenue, he put on Facebook, yo, that's the way he spoke, I'm walking away, in case you're confused, I'm walking away from drugs. And I'm going with Jesus now. And a week later, Eric said that um, he gets a phone call from this guy. And he says to Eric, hey, Eric, uh, there's a warrant out for my arrest. And I'm going to turn myself in. But I need a ride. And so this young 29-year-old church planner goes and picks this one-legged bicyclist up this ex-drug dealer, and he takes him into the county jail where he is booked, wearing, yes, you guessed it, his New City Paramore Avenue t-shirt. For some of you, rest means coming back to worship every week. For others of you, it means using your gifts in a way that will bless your community. For others of you, it means following your conviction and turning yourself in. Response to God's word means different things for different people because each of us are unique and different. But do you have ears to hear how he's calling you to respond? Upon a life I have not lived, the old hymn says. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Not on the tears which I have shed, not on the sorrows which I have known, on another's tears, on another's griefs, on these I rest on these alone. Scholars believe that Jesus quoted from the Psalms whenever he died, and Jesus gets all the way to Psalm 22 where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the very next verse that Jesus may have thought but did not utter is, oh my God, I cry to you by day, but you do not answer me, and by night, but I find no rest. On the cross, your Savior, who was rest himself, gave up his rest so that you might find it. Stop. Do you hear him? How will you respond? These next five weeks, we have the opportunity to respond to God in profound and powerful and even simple ways. Will you turn from your self-saving strategies and will you trust in him? I know you believe in him, but will you trust him? Will you rely exclusively on your Savior's triumph? Will you stop and be still and listen and respond? That's the invitation before us. The source of God's blessing is God himself. The curse of the symptoms of the curse are our exhaustion, our distraction, and our loneliness. And God's word calls us to the opportunity to respond. Would you do so by faith, knowing that he is calling you into something far bigger than you and I alone? Will you respond? Let's pray together.